Father, we know that all creation groans for the return of your Son and the fulfillment of all things. Our spirits groan and the Spirit groans within us with words too deep for utterance, anticipating the day of your return. In the meantime, Lord God, we're here once again rehearsing for that day and rehearsing for the week ahead. You give us our lines of how we are to live, and we pray that we might be faithful. So as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would be those who are hearers of the word and doers of the word, and that we would bring honor and glory to the name of our Lord by how we represent you in this very, very broken world. Guide us and teach us in these things we pray in your son's name. God has given to us uh, many, many regulations in his word, and we'll see some of those this morning. Um, Regulations, measurements, go-bys, those are all found in the natural world as well. I didn't go fishing this week, but say I did go fishing this last week, and I was to tell you that, you know, I I caught four or five cutthroat trout that were uh, uh, 12 inches long. And someone says, well, you said 12 inches. That looked like 13 to me. Or I, you said 12 inches, and someone says, that looks like 10 and a half. That's not quite. Well, how are you going to check it out? Well, you can come up here with a ruler, right, or a tape measure. And when I do this, you can say, that was 12 inches, 11 and a half, 13, whatever it is. But there's some way to find out whether I'm telling the truth or not. Of course, I did not keep the fish, so there's no way to really accurately measure the fish. That would be the true test, wouldn't it? But the point is, we have regulations everywhere. There are standards, there are rules in the, in the natural world. There are actually 12 inches that are standard. And similarly, in the church, in the spiritual world, God has given us guidelines, and he's given us instructions, and he's given us measurements, standards that are binding to us in the spiritual world and in the church. And if we are to glorify him and we are to honor his standards, then we need to adhere to them, to his teaching. We need to submit to those regulations that are given to us in Scripture. And we are going to come to that in the end because, of course, the final and ultimate standard of authority is the word of God, the inspired word of God. And we will see that in our message. But first, I want to tell you some principles derived from this passage that govern the understanding of this passage as we finish chapters 12 through 14. We're finishing up this whole study of spiritual gifts, what it means to be spiritual, tongues, prophecy, all of those things, edification. And in this passage, we see uh, several things. God is a God of peace and not confusion. It's an oft- Quoted verse, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. That's in this passage. Second of all, these guidelines that he's giving to us are binding for all the churches for all time. They're not just something that were cultural or given for a time. They're binding for all time. And third, worship is to be done in an orderly manner, in an orderly manner, not in chaos and not in confusion. So with that, we are going to read our text this morning. If you have your Bibles and you're able to stand, I invite you to do that. 
as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 through 40, as we finish out chapter 14 this morning. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Did you women say Amen? Okay, good. You're allowed. We'll get to that. Because I know the hair is coming up at the back of your head and so on. We have regulations, and there are regulations that, that Paul has listed here, and we will explain this as we go along. But we want to go through uh, our, our, our text uh, verse by verse here. And we see, first of all, in verses 29 through 33a, the first part of verse 33, that we are to follow those, God, those God-given guidelines. We have been given those, and we are to follow them as they have been given to us, because they're there for a purpose in the word of God, and we must trust him at his word. And so he says this. Remember, what we're talking about in chapters 12 through 14, we're talking about um, spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, Paul is saying, desire to prophesy because tongues are not edifying if there is no interpretation. But prophesying is something will edify others. And he speaks to the prophets in verse 29. But I would like, actually, um, let me just give you um, a couple of verses before that. Now, let me just read it to you. Yeah, sorry. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and, may, and all may be exhorted. I mean, that's what it's all about, is exhortation and everybody being edified. Now, 26 and through 28, he's, he's, he's given the order of worship, and he began with tongues. And remember, we saw this last week. He said in verse 27, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or the most three, each in turn, and one must interpret. So, there can only be, at the most, three people to speak in a tongue, this, uh, a language that they do not know. But there must be an interpreter because he says in 28, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And then in verse 29, 
If a prophet speaks, let it be by two or three, and let others pass judgment. Obviously, when we're talking about prophecy in verse 29, he is not talking about something that is on par with Scripture because the idea here is when someone gives a prophecy in the middle of a church service as uh, uh, as they exhibit a prophecy in Corinth, there were to be others that would judge whether those prophecies were true because he says, uh, two or three are to speak and let the others pass judgment. There are t- a couple ways to, to look at this. One is that the others mean everybody in the church. I, I like the idea. I think it's more accurate to say that the other prophets were the ones who were to pass judgment. So someone gives a prophecy in church, moved by the Holy Spirit, and remember what the purpose of prophecy was in chapter 14, verse 3. He said, The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, and for uh, for consolation. And so someone says, God is moving me to say this. And he gives this prophecy, or she gives this prophecy. Paul says, when that happens, the others are to to, uh, judge, and that's the word, whether this is right or whether this is wrong. Now, you wouldn't do that with Scripture, would you? Because Paul's going to say later on, what I'm telling to you is God's words. So you don't judge my words. But when someone prophesies in the church, there is, a, a, there is an order, there are guidelines. Just as if there's no interpreter, keep silent. And in this case, they are to be judged by those who are there. Words that are spoken and prompted by the Holy Spirit that encourage and bring us comfort and edification. But unlike tongues, where... There was just an interpretation required, just an interpretation here. Judgment is made on the basis of other prophets. So what was the standard of them making this judgment? First of all, existing known prophecy of some sort. Uh, And we remember at this point, there have only been uh, four books written before 1 Corinthians. James, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Galatians. There are 27 books in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has not really been written yet. There is not, they can't go and look it up in Romans and Ephesians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. There was, there was only a limited amount of scripture, New Testament scripture at that time. So all that known so far. Second of all, the guideline would be the Old Testament. They did have the Old Testament scriptures. And if something that was said in in the church service that did not jibe with the Old Testament, they would say, sorry, this is wrong. That is not valid. Third, the teachings of Jesus. There was an oral tradition that was passed around the churches. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had not been written yet, but there was an oral tradition of his teachings, and they would weigh it against that. And then, of course, there is the apostolic teaching, there was the teaching of Paul who had been with them. Peter had visited them. Apollos, remember, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus. So the apostolic teaching that they would weigh those prophecies against. And all throughout uh, those teachings were warnings about false teachers. And then I think lastly, there would be previously vetted prophecies that they had already said, yeah, this is good. So um, they would judge these by existing prophecy, Old Testament scriptures, teachings of Jesus, teachings of the apostles but then they would give deference to one another in this these prophecies 
It says, but if a revelation is made, in verse 30 he says, to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So presumably it went like this. If someone were to speak in the congregation, they would come up, and I have a prophecy, the Lord is moving me to tell this to you as a congregation, and they begin to speak, and someone is seated, and all of a sudden they, they are moved by the Spirit to give a a, a, a prophecy to the church, the one who is here defers to them and is silent. And they defer to that other prophet. These are the guidelines that Paul gave to them. They're really kind of unusual. We don't function that way because we don't have this kind of prophecy going on. We have identified and defined prophecy in chapters 12 through 14. The way we practice it today which is mainly teaching of God's word and, and, and uh, pastoral teaching of God's word. But there were prophets in this time who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the scriptures were not yet written, and there were miraculous signs going on. Uh, and in the scriptures, we see miracles basically confined to the time of Moses and Aaron, the time of Elijah and the prophets, and the, the time of Jesus and the apostles. And at this time, there was a lot of miraculous things going on. And Paul is trying to make sure that things don't get out of hand and make sure that these prophecies are properly vetted. But again, as he says in verse 31, the purpose of prophecy, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. The purpose of of the prophecies was the building up of the body of Christ. We've seen that over and over again. It's for the common good. It is for the edification of others. And prophecy was preferable to tongues in that regard. And then he says in verses 32 and 33, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. There are two things that that might mean, but basically he's saying they're guidelines. The prophets are subject. In other words, they, it's the word submit, just like women are to submit to uh, their husbands and we are to submit to the governing authorities. Here they are to submit to one another. In one way this might mean, uh, mean be meant is that the spirit of the prophets are subject to themselves, to the prophet themselves, that they practice self-control or I prefer the spirit of the prophets is subject to the other prophets. You have to submit to others because if you have two prophets and uh, one says, you know what, uh, two or three uh, uh, pass judgment on what is said, you have to submit yourself to that. So it's, you know, Jerry stands up in the, the service and says, you know, God is moving me to say such and such. And then you have Bill and Fred and Tom over here say, we don't think that's right. And so that has been judged to, to not be a prophecy to be listened to. Or Jill stands up and gives a prophecy because women were allowed to do that. And then three of the other prophets say, yeah, that is in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures, what we've been taught. And so, yes, we will allow that prophecy. So the prophet's spiritual giftedness is to be under the control of the guidelines that Paul has laid down. And it's, again, it's just, we don't practice that here. This is a different time. This is a, that was a different manifestation of prophecy in those days. But here is the, the, the key thing that he says. 
that governs it. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Literally, it says, for God is not of confusion, but of peace. People quote that verse all the time. God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. And they they focus on the confusion. But what about the other side of the equation? God is a God of peace and not of confusion. And if confusion is introduced into the worship service, that is not from God. And he's trying to, to, to make sure that there's not this free-for-all when people are just jumping up and saying, God told me this, and God told me this, and he wants you to do this. And he said, wait, 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 wait. We don't want this kind of confusion in the church, so these are the guidelines by which you go. Remember, God desires peace, and he desires this evaluation. In, in John chapter 4, verse 1 uh, John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even at that time, the New Testament was not written. False prophets are out there. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it was coming and now it already is in the world. John was telling the churches, test those prophecies and make sure that they are from God. And when truth is elevated as given by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will give peace rather than confusion. So, a couple of lessons. First lesson we must and we will always evaluate biblical teaching. It's important for us to do that. We live in a different time. We have the scriptures. And when we, we read the scriptures, uh, we don't want people saying, well, that's not the word of God. But what I say about it might be another matter. That means if we are going to evaluate, uh, evaluate biblical teaching, that means you need to evaluate me, right? Because I am not infallible. This is. It's not what I say about it so much as when we, that's why we stand up when we read because we value the, the infallible inspired word of God. And we as a church have a responsibility to make sure that what is taught squares with all of the rest of scripture. That doesn't mean that we become hypercritical and super sensitive and we nitpick everything because some people have that spirit, don't they? The, the critical spirit, and, and they're always listening to find that one thing that a teacher or a preacher says, and, and they want to just hang on to that to make a major case out of a minor case. But we have a responsibility for clarity. And we have a responsibility when that clarity is not there to talk to our leaders about that. And I welcome that. We have checks and balances because if I am preaching something that I shouldn't be preaching, the elders will let me know about it. But my wife will let me know about it first. Second of all, order in the church and peace in our worship services is an indication of the Spirit's presence, not his absence. Some people say, well, when you have this order of service and everything is done this way, you know, there's no freedom, there's no no spirit working, and it's cold, dead orthodoxy. That is not what this says, is it? Paul says, these are the order of things that you need to follow. This is evidence 
that the Spirit is working in our midst because the Holy Spirit will never introduce confusion. When there is confusion, it either comes from our own making or it comes from another spirit altogether. Remember how Paul began chapter 12. He said, when he said, "Uh, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual things. And he says in verse 3, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you remember our study at that time, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to understand what it is he, he's trying to get at. But what he does right at the beginning of, this, uh, uh, of his treatise on chapters 12 through 14 is introduce the idea of spiritual error, that there are other spirits about. We are in a battle that will try to pull us away. Everything is spiritual, Right? We are in a battle, and whatever leads to error is not of God. Any error about Jesus is of another spirit. Any rejection of Jesus is of another spirit. Any error that threatens our unity is of another spirit. And any confusion in our worship services is of another spirit. There is order, and we are to follow the guidelines that God has given to us. And that order is given to us in the word of God, which now brings us to the ladies in verses 33b through 35, where really what we want to see here is that we are to respect and we are to have an honor and respect for the God-given roles of the sexes, the God-given gender roles that God gives to us in the scriptures by creation. Verse 33b, he says, In all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Now, he first of all starts by saying, Now, what I'm telling you, this is a standard practice in all the churches. And, and, and some say, Well, does. As in all the churches, does that go with what happened before, that there should be no confusion? Or does it come afterwards when, it, when he's talking about women in the church? And the answer is yes, both. Because Paul has made similar statements all throughout the, the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 2, 4, 17, 7, 17, 11:16 and now in 14:36 he's reminding them that the teaching all the teaching he gives to them is standard in all the churches everywhere at all times it's not just something for the Corinthians it's not just something for a church this is something for all the churches he's not singling them out in any way he's making sure that they understand look i teach everybody this 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 is the truth. I'm not telling you anything. I don't tell other churches. There are standards and beliefs and practices for all the churches, and this is one of them. The big question is, what does it mean, right? Does this mean absolute silence for women? Some people take it that way, that women cannot speak in this room in the worship service at all. But think about that. Does, Does that really make any sense? I mean, if, if Paul says it and that's what it means, then that's what it means. But what that would mean if it means absolute silence 
that women could not pray. They could not prophesy. Um, we could, women could not say the amen. We couldn't greet one another. Um, you couldn't give testimonies. We couldn't have uh, Michaela up here singing. You can't sing, ladies. You have to listen to the men sing. You can't say the amen at the, at the, at the, at the, the reading of the scripture. I don't think that's what God has in mind. There is an apparent contradiction here, apparent, because remember back in chapter 11, another difficult verse about women. We saw that women could pray and prophesy in church as long as they had the proper symbol of authority on their head. So he said that they could do that. And now he says that they can't speak in the church. So what gives? And we've also seen in chapters 12 through 14 that everyone has been given a spiritual gift and everyone is to participate in worship with their mind and with their spirit. And, every, and no one is excluded. He never says everybody gets a spiritual gift except women. Everybody can sing except for women. He doesn't say that at all. Paul cannot be commanding women to absolute silence in worship. Everyone, including women, and in some cases, especially women, have an indisputable role in the worship of God. So, as always, context is king. You know, people take a verse out of context. Look at the context. And the context is verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Get down and let the women be silent in the church. Since it comes right after his regulations on prophecy, he is speaking specifically to women making judgments between prophets in the worship service. That is the context. Prophecy was recognized to be this spirit-prompted utterance uh, with no guarantee of divine authority, but it was not equal to Scripture, thus they were passing judgment on it. And when he says the women should keep silent in the church, he means the women should keep silent during the evaluation of the prophets. Some of those prophecies in the early church, again, were indeed supernatural words from God. Abagus was a prophet in the book of Acts, and he foretold something that would happen. Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. They were speaking somehow in the church prophecies. The women in Corinth were allowed to give to pray and give prophecies as long as they had their head coverings, whatever. We went through that. We're not going to relitigate that. But the point is they were not allowed to make this judgment in the middle of the service. And what does Paul appeal to here? He says, just as the law also says. Earlier in this chapter, he referred to the law as the Old Testament. He doesn't give a specific verse, but he's re re referring, we're quite certain, to the creative order of male and female. Because in Genesis 1, God made the man first. He made the woman out of the man. And he, he gave headship to the men. And men are to be those leaders in that sense. He has appealed to the creative order in chapter 6, talking about one flesh and the role of sex. In chapter 11, talking about the proper role of, of worship of women. And now in chapter 14, Paul taught elsewhere, we know, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2.11, based upon the creative order where he said, 
I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In other words, he taught that women could not be pastors or elders or teachers of men in the church, and he based it upon the creative order. And then he says there, because man was made before the woman. So although Paul didn't allow those, he didn't restrict the invaluable role of the life and ministry of worship of women in the church. And that role is very, very important. They are indispensable. In Galatians 3, which he had already written by this time, that says, There is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor nor slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. We are equal men and women in Christ. So women can, can sing. They can pray. They can speak. They can say amen. They can speak in tongues. They can prophesy with their proper head coverings of authority. They just can't pass judgment on the prophecies. So in verse 28, he says, but if there is an interpreter... If there is no interpreter, keep silent. And then he said of the prophets, if someone starts to interrupt you, you need to keep silent. And then he says of the women, you are to keep silent when there are prophecies as well. So the women are not the only ones in the passage who are called to silence. It depends upon what is happening. So here's what happens. Gary has a prophecy. And Jill is a prophet. She's got her head covering on. Jerry has this prophecy. And uh, she's thinking to herself, that's not right. I don't think that's the right thing. I don't think he's given a proper prophecy. Well, the other prophets are to pass judgment on that. And what is she to do? It says in verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak those judgments in the church. So, Women were to be silent when it comes to making those judgments. So what if, uh, um, what if uh, Larry is the one who has a prophecy and Jill is over here and Larry is speaking and she thinks that, no, Larry is really out to lunch on this one. And Larry happens to be her husband. It would be improper for her to, in the middle of the service, say, you're wrong. It would be a disgrace to him. It would be very, very improper for her to call her husband out in public like that. That's why he says, you know, uh, Larry and Jill, you need to go talk about it at home. You you, You can talk about it all you want at home, but it would be improper for you to call out your husband giving a wrong prophecy or an inaccurate prophecy, prophecy in the worship service. And that is what this means. He's not a wholesale um, um, uh, embargo against women being able to, uh, to speak in the church, but he wants to keep the peace and not confusion amongst men and women, and particularly in the marriage relationship. So these are early days in the church. Remember, they could not publicly challenge the words of prophets. Women could not. They could not teach or exercise authority over men. But they were included in all those who were gifted without exception in chapters 12 through 14. And they were encouraged to serve their gifts. They could participate in all of the elements of worship, sing, pray, give thanks, speak in a tongue, give a prophecy, give testimony, say amen. They could even do the prophecy and the praying as long as they had that symbol of authority. 
So, some application for us. First of all, we encourage our women to deep theological, spiritual growth and service of their gifts. We want that to happen because that's what the scriptures say. Edification is for everyone to be edified, but it's for everyone to edify as well. And women play a huge role in edifying others in the body of Christ. We have a plethora, a cadre, a bevy, if you will, of godly, excellent women at Valley Bible Church. We really, really do. And I'm not blowing smoke. It is the absolute truth. We had a women's retreat here a few weeks ago. And the the input that I got, I wasn't there to interrupt any of the ladies. But anyway, um, I have heard so many glowing reports of the women who spoke because, you know, usually you want to bring some outside whiz-bang speaker in and they're going to they're going to really, you know, blow the socks off, bless the socks off everybody. We had women speak at that conference who could who could be conference speakers in their own right. And those are the kind of women of excellence that we have at Valley Bible Church, and we celebrate that. Men, here is an opportunity for you, though, to a deeper spiritual theological communication between husbands and wives, this idea of women talking to their husbands at home. Here is one way that you can do that because some of you guys have a hard time praying with your wife or talking about spiritual things with your wife. When it comes to life groups, we have the teaching of God's word on Sunday morning. And then you have the the questions that you do. How about doing those, you and your spouse independently? And then husbands saying, honey, let's talk about your answers. And maybe they're better theologians than you are, men. And you might learn something. But this is an opportunity for you to have a a theological, a spiritual communion with your wife before you go to life group so that you are one voice speaking what you have found in the scriptures. Second of all, the greatest appreciation of women and men is found in our God-given differences. The roles that he has given to us, that's how we see the, the value. The value is in the distinctions that God has made us different. Different is better. Viva la difference. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And our world is trying to blur the distinctions. Not just with transgenderism, but that's the huge thing that is coming down the pike to just destroy what is a woman. She is something made in the image of God with distinctive roles and responsibilities and abilities that men do not have. Even feminists are beginning to realize that. And they don't have the scriptures. They just have the, 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 the law of God written in their heart. And nature tells them this is wrong. And we must elevate women and the differences that they have and elevate men as well because, you know, the whole thing of toxic masculinity. No, men need to be men. And we must celebrate what manliness is and what femininity is, what it means to be female and what it means to be male. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But we come to the word of God because that is how we know that these things are true. 
And in 36 through 38, we see that we all are to submit to God-given authority. Verse 36, and when he says this in verse 36, um, he's, he's not pleased with them. He's being rather direct and really, really blunt. He says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, O Corinthians, or has it come to you only? Do you really think that you were the first and only church to receive the, go- the gospel? You think you were the mother church? Really? Is that how you're acting? Because that's how they had been acting. That we are the supreme church and the gospel came to us only and first. No. They were a little podunk church. I mean, they were Christ church, but they were just out there. And, and they were a church that had been planted, but they were not the mother church. And they did not have a corner on the truth. And Paul is addressing their arrogance and their pride. He doesn't use the word arrogant here, but it's obviously what he's addressing. He's used that word six times in the book because it was a huge problem in Corinth. So he says in verse 37 and 38, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, calling back to 12.1, where he said, I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual things. So if you think you're a prophet, we're talking about prophecy. If you think you're a spiritual person, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. Paul, you cannot claim that Paul's just giving his opinion about women here or giving his opinion about tongues here or giving his opinion about spiritual gifts here. Paul directly claims that his writings are divinely inspired. What he is saying is that his words are the Lord's words. It's not the same as those prophecies where they're they're, they're getting together and saying, well, I vote yes and I vote no. No, none of that stuff. In fact, these verses overshadow the whole discussion of tongues and prophecy because they, that is tongues and prophecy, are child's play. Compared to what Paul says here, when I speak, they're the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't, you don't judge that. Your little prophets don't pass judgment on that. So today, we don't have the same kind of prophetic gifts that they had. We have something better. We have the completed word. And that's what we have to go on. Self-appointed thinking about spirituality and giftedness will result in judgment because he says in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That is a warning. That's a very stern warning. If you don't recognize my words are the Lord's words, you will not be recognized. It's almost uh, akin to saying Jesus will say to you, depart from me for I didn't know you. You didn't know me, and I never knew you. The rejection of the Lord's commandments through the apostles is a rejection of the Lord himself. Some lessons. The Lord's words are our ultimate authority. Not the giftedness that we have in the church, and we have many who are gifted, But they're the words of God himself. That is our authority. And that is what we will hold to, and that's what we will stick to as a church. Second, 
those who reject the inspired word of God are neither spiritual nor are they prophets. And there are many people who reject the words of Christ and the words of the apostles and they find all sorts of ways to get around it. They are not spiritual people. There is a false spirituality and there are false prophets that are in the world. And Paul is warning about that and he warns us. Paul then, in verses 39 through 40, brings the whole matter of 12 through 14 to a conclusion. To a conclusion. He says in verse 39, Therefore, my brethren, he softens it now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore, here's, here's the summation of the whole thing I've been talking to you since chapter 12 and 13 and 14. Desire earnestly to prophesy, because that's where edification is, And do not forbid to speak in tongues. He recognizes it as a valid gift. He doesn't want to quench the spirit, but in both of those, he has given regulations. That's why he says in verse 40, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, everything that we do in worship. Two things as we close. The Holy Spirit's presence, his power And his working will be evidenced by orderliness, by edification, and by love. So propriety and orderliness are not in opposition to the Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit. And lastly, if we were to say, what is he saying about worship here? All is for edification All is to be done decently and in order, in a spirit of peace and not confusion, and of course, in love. That's what he has said in 12 through 14. The church I was at before we came here a long time ago now, it's getting longer as time goes on, I was the worship pastor there, but we had a a saying from an old Ford commercial, and the saying was this, worship is job one. It's the most important thing we do. We come together and we worship God together and we edify one another when we pray and we sing and we teach and we love and we glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And I call you that, you call you to that Valley Bible Church that worship will be our ultimate priority privately and corporately that we do all things in love, in a spirit of good order and discipline. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We ask, Lord, that as we sing this final song, we would indeed sing with understanding that our minds and our hearts would be engaged and that they would be engaged the rest of this week as we are worshipers and no longer rebels. You've made peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ.